Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. To get the attention of one of the guys. Um, again, concerning the prayer initiative, September is six days away. That is Tuesday, September 1st. Um, please, we... we um, there, you know, there's a passage in the Bible where uh, the prophet Elisha went to one of the kings. His name was Joash, and there was a threat from an enemy. It was the Syrian army, and Elisha went to Joash, the king, and he was the leader. You know, he was the one that was kind of like, uh, with the eyes were on him, God was using him, and Elisha uh, told him to take a bow and arrow, and Elisha stood behind him and, and, and kind of like shielded him like he was spotting him or something, and they both held the bow and they both held the arrow, and then they shot it out the window towards Syria, and Elisha said, that is the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. And then Elisha did something kind of strange. He told the king to take an arrow and to, he said, then King James, it says, smite it on the ground, you know, so like just whack it on the ground. And the king took the arrow and he kind of like thought the, the, the illustration was silly, you know, you know, like I'm a politician, I deal with gold and guns and you're asking me to tap an arrow. And so he kind of just like went through the motions and he just kind of tapped the arrow uh, gently on the ground three times. And Elisha got angry and that was contrary to his nature. He was more, he wasn't like Elijah who was kind of like the fly off the handle guy. Elisha was more the laid back, uh, chill kind of guy, but Elisha got angry and he said, you just made a big mistake. And he said, whoa, 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 what, what is it? He said, he said you, should have, you should have taken that arrow and you should have slammed it on the ground five or six times. He goes, but because you only did it three times and you didn't take it seriously and there was no zeal in what you did, the Lord is only going to give partial deliverance from the Syrians. Three, you'll win three battles, but you're not going to completely defeat the enemy because you didn't take it seriously. And I really kind of feel like we're living in a time right now where there's a threat to us as a church, as a nation, as human beings. I mean, I don't think we even really understand the potential size of the threat that we're facing right now. And you and I as the church, we have the authority in prayer and the authority as God's called ones in the world to make a difference. And the weapon that we have is prayer. That's what God's given to us. And, you know, we kind of like right now, we're, we're kind of like through what feels like the biggest pain or adjustment period of what's gone on this year. And I think there's like almost this thing like, okay, it's almost over now. It's not that big of a deal. No, 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 no. This is the time right now where we really need to pray. We really need to smite the arrow on the ground and finish the job. Like if God is doing something, if he's beating things back uh, in his favor and to our light and you know, thriving as the church, good, but it's not over yet. And so please, like Wednesday night prayer, 6 p.m. has been great. We had 25 people tonight. That's the most we've ever had. But don't say, oh, good. That's No, no, come out to that. Please pray with us. The prayer initiative, open up your house for the month of September. Just pick a night of the week. We're taking Tuesdays at my house. We want to start September 1st so that we get five, you know, out, uh, you know at least, and, uh, and just hit the ground running with it, you know. So uh, please pick a night. Call the church. Get in touch with us. Say, yeah, we'll do it this time. It doesn't have to be a night if you're a person. If you're a single woman and you just want women, say, we'll do it Tuesday afternoons and it's just women. Do whatever you want, but open up your house for an hour of prayer once a week throughout the month of September and really ask God, seek God with us right now for the things uh, that he's doing. It's of the most utmost importance. I'm appealing to you, please take it seriously. Uh, we live in critical times, very critical times. So uh, please be a part of that. Tomorrow night, it wasn't announced, but tomorrow night is prayer for the nation. We've been doing that the last Thursday of every month. Tomorrow night is the last Thursday of every month. And so we'll be here at 7 p.m. tomorrow evening in the, uh, wherever Liz is not. So somewhere in this building, uh, there'll be a sign in the hallway. You'll be able to find us. But I'm um, just praying for the things going on right now. I know a lot of prayer, but that's the best thing. And then um, finally, just to, to, to bring you up to speed on things, um, tonight is our last study in the series, Decisionaries, that we've been doing these past couple Wednesday nights. Uh, and, and next week, we're going to start a study in 1 Samuel, going through 1 Samuel. And here's why. Because 1 Samuel represents a time of transition 
for the nation of Israel. Uh, they were making a transition from, from a, a rulership of judges to a rulership of kings. There was a, a line of priests, the line of Eli, uh, that was coming to an end, and God was going to begin to move through a new line of priests. Uh, we see Saul, the first king, transitioning to David. There's just transition happening. And right now, we are living in a time of transition. Because obviously you guys know things are not what they were a year ago, and no matter what, they're not ever going to be that again. Uh, Best case scenario, God pours out his spirit and there's a revival and he does an amazing thing, but that's going to be different than it was a year ago. And worst case scenario, uh, the powers that be steamroll everything and the whole world just flips upside down. Either way, there's transition. But the good news is that God's not done. He says that he has foreseen every generation and that he knows what he's doing. He knows what's coming. And so we need to be ready and flexible and yielded to be the people of God in whatever environment comes, whether that be revival or not, (laughs) you know. So that's why we're going to study for Samuel. We're going to look at God having control over the changes and things that happen uh, in a society, in a world that's ever-changing. And so pray for me as we get ready to do that. You are informed of where we are going on Wednesday nights. We've opened in our Bibles for tonight's Bible study, the final study in Decisionaries to John 21 and also uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And let's do this. Let's pray first tonight. I'm going to pray right now for our study and then uh, read the text that I want to share with you and then we'll get into the message. So Father, we thank you for uh, your ways. We thank you for your person. And we ask that you would please pour out your spirit upon this time right now. That you would put a silence in our hearts. That you would put a softness in our spirit. That you would give us the ability to hear and to receive what you want to give to us tonight. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that tonight there would be freedom in this place. I pray that there would be such an outpouring of your love and such an ability of us to apprehend, comprehend, and receive what you've given and what you have for us, and that our lives would be changed forever from things that we hear from you tonight. And so we ask, Lord, that this would not just be another service, but that you'd pour out your spirit in a powerful way. And we thank you, Lord, for your strength to do so and your willingness to do so. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 13, 13, I want to read first. It says this. It says that now abides faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now I'm going to turn to John chapter 13. You're not there in your Bible, but you can read it on the screen. And then I'm going to go to John 21. But John verse, uh, John chapter 13 and verse 34. Jesus. Uh, G- where am I? Is it thirteen thirty-four? That's what I have here. Did I? Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. I wrote the wrong thing, which means there's going to be another wrong thing somewhere else later on. Um, but whatever. It says, then the disciples looked on one another. Where am I? Let's pray again. Let's <laughs> start over. Oh, Lord, we, we do just pray that you would lead, uh, lead us through your word tonight, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Okay, it is. 1323, it says this. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. There was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, John chapter 21 This time I'm sure of it, verse 20. John 21, verse 20, it says this. It says that then Peter, turning about, he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is it that betrays you? And Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? And Jesus said unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? Follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the children or the brethren that the disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, He shall not die, but if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple, the one that Jesus loved. This is the disciple which testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. We know that his testimony is true. Now, the man who said that he is the disciple whom Jesus loved was the man who wrote the words in the book we read from the book of John. It is John, the apostle, 
who called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, John says that not twice, but six times throughout the Gospel of John. That's the only way that he addresses himself in the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved, never calling himself by name. He only calls himself with that identity. I am the disciple that Jesus loved. And then he seals the testimony by saying that we know that his testimony is true, meaning that he wasn't guessing hoping or professing that he was the one that Jesus loved. He knew that he was the one that Jesus loved. And so he wrote these things to the church. And so tonight I want to talk to you about one of the greatest decisionaries of all time concerning the man who invested in the highest valued invisible asset that exists in all of the universe, and that is love. Now, over the series, if you've been tracking with us, you know what we've been doing. We've been looking at invisible things that God has made real, that people have been able to see and then invest their lives in or appropriate into their beings, and then we get to see the kind of life that that produced. And so we looked at faith the first week. And what happens when someone grabs a hold of this invisible thing called faith because they can see what it is, and then they live their life according to it. They invest in it. What kind of life does that produce? And then last week, we looked at hope, this invisible thing called hope, the expectation of good things to come. It can't be seen. You can't put a tangible description on it. You can't take a photo of it, but it's real. It exists. It's a substance. And what happens when I live my life according to it? And then this week, love. What happens when someone can take this invisible thing, this highest priced thing, the greatest of these, the gold standard of invisible things in the Bible, and then live their life according to it? to build their life upon the foundation of it. What does it look like when you make love the hallmark of your life? And what does it mean to make a decision to live that kind of way? Now, the highest human capacity, the thing that makes us the most like God in that we have been made in his image, is our ability to receive and give love. It's probably the greatest thing that sets us apart from the animal kingdom or from any other living thing is that we have the ability to receive and give love. It's different than just normal instinct, you know, like, like animals do in the animal kingdom or natural affection or even having a familial bond with someone. You know, sometimes the, the bond that we have as families, they say blood is thicker than water. This is different than all of that. That, kind of, that stuff kind of exists in the animal kingdom. You get too close to a baby cub, what's the mother do? You know, she's going to rip your head off. That doesn't necessarily mean that she knows love. It does mean that she has a pre-programmed instinct inside of her to rip your head off if you get too close to her baby because that's natural, you know. But love is different. And God has given us, made in his image, the ability to experience it in both receiving and the giving of it. Now, 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 tells us something amazingly powerful and huge about God. And here's what it is. It says this. You guys know the verse. John says this. Same John who wrote these things. John said, we have known and believed the love that God has towards us. And listen, here it is. He says, God is love. Now think about that for just a minute. It doesn't say that God made love. It doesn't say that God knows love. And it doesn't even say that God has love. Those things kind of are true by default, but this is even deeper than that. It says that God is love. Now the thing about that that amazes me the most is that it took spiritual men all the way until John the Apostle for someone to write that in the Bible. Meaning that that slipped by Abraham, it slipped by Moses, it slipped by David and Samuel and the Psalm writers, it slipped by everybody, and it wasn't until the Apostle John, late in his life, walked with God, that he put that together, inspired by the Spirit of God. 
coupling it with his experience of God. And then under his inspiration, he put that together, that God is love. That those two things are one and the same. That love is actually an inseparable part of his entire person. You can't take it away. You can't take love away from God and still have God be God because God is love. It's his nature. It's his person. It's the core value of his being, which means this. It means that love, because God is love, love is the driving force behind every other attribute of God, which means that you can't separate God's love from God's holiness. God's holiness is attached to, connected to God's love. You can't detach God's love from his shepherding. The Lord is our shepherd, the one who leads. But you can't detach the two things, meaning that it's his love that motivates and drives the leading of God in our lives. Even God's judgment, our God is a God who judges evil, who judges sin, who makes decisions, that even his judgment is motivated and connected to his love. His plan is connected to his love. His timing of what he does in our lives and when he does it is connected to his love. God's restrictions And when God says no to something or doesn't allow us to go a certain direction or open a door for us, that that is connected to his love for us. And even God's discipline when God chastises or when we need that spiritual spanking that he'll give us from time to time, that that's motivated and connected to his love. So God is love. Now that in and of itself demands that we understand what love is. Because we all know that just because you name something something doesn't mean that that's what it is, right? I mean, right now we're living in a world that's screaming against fascism, and yet it's being very fascist in its behavior. At the same time, it's screaming against it. We're living in a world that's screaming against racism, But at the same time, it's behaving very racist with its actions. We're living in a world that's screaming against injustice, economic injustice. But at the same time, those very same people are strengthening some of the strongest monopolies that have ever existed in the history of the world. And so just calling something something doesn't necessarily make it that something. And I don't think there's been anything that's been more misdefined than love right? I mean, we call love everything. In the English language, we love our ice cream and we love our spouse. You know, we love our food and we love our car and we love our dog and we love our shoes and we love God. And somehow all of that can't equal out into the same definition. The Greek language, the Greeks actually had four different words that they used for love. One of them was concerning friendship. They used a separate word for friendship, another one concerning family, another one concerning passion, and then a totally separate word to represent the love that one would have towards God or the love that God would have towards us. So they did a little better in the Greek language than we do in the English language. But here's the good news, is that the Bible clearly defines for us what love means when God says love, when, when God says that he is love, he's careful to define it for us so that there's no mistaking or misunderstanding exactly what love is. And the Bible is very clear about it. So you're already in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, because that is the chapter, the section of scripture that gives to us a very comprehensive definition of what love actually is. Now, I'm not going to spend an immense amount of time going through and defining it because it's a very well-known passage of Scripture, and it's very clear and self-explanatory, but I do want to look at it and see what does the Bible say that love is. Now, the chapter begins by telling us what love isn't in the first three verses. Look at it with me. It's the Apostle Paul, and he writes this. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity. That word charity is 
agape, love. It's the love. If you have a different version, it says love. But I have not loved, and I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. The first thing that love is not is our words. Okay, love is not what we say. Though we can say it with poetic and flowery language, though we can elicit an emotional response through the things that we say, love is not found in words. That's what love is not, number one. Number two, verse two, it says, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity or have not love, then I am nothing. So love is not what I say, and love is also not what I do. My actions I'm sorry, what I have, rather. Love is not what I have. If I have gifts from God, he's given me the ability to prophesy. He's given me the ability to be a martyr and lay my life down. Those gifts that I've been given from God, those things do not reflect love. That's not love. Number three, verse three. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. That's what I do. Okay, so love is not what I say, it's not what I have, and it's not what I do. I cannot find the true definition or essence or presence of love in any of those things. Okay, love is unseen, and so therefore it is manifested and it is known in things that are unseen. And the things that I say, the things that I have, and the things that I do, those are all outward things. So then where is love found? What is love? He begins telling us in verse 4. And he gives us many characteristics, some of them overlapping. He says in verse 4 that love suffers long and love is kind. And the King James suffers long. In every other translation, they just simply use the word patient. But suffers long is what it means to be patient. To be patient means to suffer for a long time. It means to bear with an unpleasant situation for a very long time. And it's the part of God that we associate with him when we, call, we talk about God's grace. <laughs> we know that God is gracious. He's very gracious. Uh, there was a time when I worked in the city, and I was telling my kids this the other night, that we had to work a full weekend. We had to start Friday night, and we had to work until Monday morning. And there was no stop. They shut down a, a train station in Queens, and we had from Friday night to Monday morning to rip off and replace the metal roof on this entire train station. And we worked through that whole thing. And I remember my role in the thing is, is I was the detail guy. And the guy I worked for at the time, he said, you're going to do all the tinker work because you're good with tinker work. I'm good with tinker work first thing in the morning. I'm not good with tinker work 36 hours into the project, but he did get one thing right is that that's, that's my personality. And, and, and there's an element of patience in that. I, patience is one of my stronger things. I'm not going to say fully strength because there's areas where I can still be very impatient, but, but patience is, is, comes a little bit easier for me. I can do, I could unwind like 17 extension cords that all got wound up into a ball I can take the time to do that, and I'm content. I'm, I'm happy with patience, okay? And that's the idea, is that God is patient. He takes our lives, and there's a lot of tinker work that needs to be done. There's processes and stages and things that need to be taken out before things can be put in, and there's knots that are wound up in our heart that are going to take a long time to untie, and God is very patient to do those things. Love is patient. God is patient, okay? It all goes on to say that God is kind. I love this word because it's the only time in the New Testament that this specific word is used. And the word kind there is the verb form, the action form of the word goodness. So it's active goodness. Now the root word or the root of the word that's used there, and I don't mean to get technical on you, but there's a reason for it. The root of the word literally means to be used. So when it says that God is kind, that love is kind, literally that God puts himself in a place where he's willing to be used or he allows himself to be used. That's remarkable to me 
Because we're not talking about like Jeeves, you know, the unnamed servant. We're talking about God Almighty. And God is saying that he puts himself into a place where he's willing to be. Any of you ever in here been used by someone? Do you know what it means to be used? It means that you become a tool or a force or an engine used by someone to accomplish their design or desire. That's what it means to be used by someone. And all of us in here, in some respect, have been used by someone before. There are whole relationships that exist between people that are based only upon mutual using of one another. There's something on the table. And so our relationship is based upon that something on the table. And outside of that, I've got no use for you. And so I will use you for the purpose of what's on the table right now, but take that away and there's no relationship that's left over. We are using one another, okay? A lot of times when a marriage breaks up, what's revealed in the breakup of that marriage is that either one or both of the people involved in that marriage were using the other person. And when that usefulness is no longer there, they no longer can serve the purpose that they were to accomplish in my life through this relationship. Now I have no more use and the relationship breaks down and it falls apart. Now, the amazing thing is that God already knows everything about us. So he knows that we use him, and yet his love puts him in a place where he's willing to be used. One of the things that I hate the most is when God exposes in my life, or just life exposes in my life, areas where I've used God. I've been praying for something. Oh, Lord, for your glory, would you please provide for me in this way? Oh, Lord, for your glory, would you please? And then, and then come to find out later as my heart is exposed and t- that I was just using God. All that devotion and talk about his glory and everything. He saw right through it the whole time, but he still answered the prayer. Because God is good and he's kind. The verb form of goodness. He's kind. The next three I'm going to talk about, and, uh, they don't go in order with the text, but they almost do, all have to do with working angles. It says, love does not envy Love envies not, love vaunteth not itself, that means to, to, uh, to boast of itself, and love is not puffed up, and it does not behave itself unseemly. All four of those, to envy means that you want something that you don't have, right? We all understand envy. We all know what it means to want something that we don't have. But when it talks about God not envying, it means that God's love is never motivated by trying to get something that he doesn't have. Now, you say, well, what in the world doesn't God have? There's only one thing, and that's your affection. Because he's given you the free will to give that to him at your pleasure. He has everything else. And so what it's telling us essentially is that true love, God gives that love not in order to get something from you. He's not motivated by trying to get something out of your hand. He doesn't want anything from you. Love doesn't want anything. It doesn't envy. It also says that that love does not boast. The idea behind boast is that the love is not for the sake of display, meaning that he doesn't love so that he can show off to someone else how good he is at loving. That's not why he loves you, all right? Now, if we ever had, in, 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 a, in a system, if we ever had a husband contest, I could win that contest, Me, meaning like the, who's the best husband? Because I've been married 20 years, and I know how to do it, okay? I could make all y'all look bad as husbands, okay? But that's not love. That would just be pure pride, in competition. It has no bearing on whether or not I actually love my wife. It just means that I know how to make it look like I do really good. Okay? Now, that's the idea when it says that love both. In other words, God has the ability to say, oh, I'll show the world love. Look what I do for this guy. That's not the, way, that's not the motive behind God's love. He doesn't love us so that he can show someone else how much he loves us. That would be a corrupt motive. There would be some twisted thing behind it. That's the, that would be boasting. When it says that love does not behave itself unseemly in verse 5 or uncomely, the idea behind that is that there's no scheme. That's the word. The word is actually schema in the Greek. I promised myself I wouldn't say a Greek word tonight, but I've already broken that promise so many times, you know, because who cares, right? You're not going to remember that part, but, but you know what a scheme is, right? In the English language, a scheme means that there's some kind of ulterior motive. 
It means that you're working the angles. And the idea behind God's love is that when God loves, he's not working angles. He's not trying to get something to happen or bring something around from the backside or leveraging his love in some way to produce some other outcome. There's no scheme behind it. He doesn't leverage his love to produce selfish means. He says back at the end of verse 4 that he doesn't flatter, that, that love doesn't flatter. Do you know how dangerous flattery is? Flattery is so dangerous. When you flatter someone and you, you puff them up, you know, you, you say to them that they're wonderful when they really stink, you know, that's a terrible thing to do because it's pure darkness. I mean, you're shrouding truth in something that's completely untrue, whereas honesty is pure light and God doesn't flatter, which means that God's not going to tell us something about ourselves that's untrue just in order to puff us up or to build us up. When there's something about us that is true that's praiseworthy, he will praise us in those things. But he won't do that when it's not true because that's false and deceptive. And, and I know when someone is puffing me up. I know when someone comes to me and says, oh, you're amazing or you're handsome. I'm like, <laughs> looking right at my wife right now. Which, <laughs> you're, I'm, I know what I look like. I have to look at myself every day. I have for the whole of my life had to look at myself. Don't tell me those things because it makes me distrust everything else you say to me. God doesn't flatter us. He tells the truth. Truth is love. It says that God is not easily provoked. Love is not easily provoked. I'm so thankful for that. Because how many times in my life have I thought that God is going to forsake or abandon or chastise or do something horrible in my life because I fell short in some way? I've provoked him. How many times have I gotten up to teach the Bible and I'm worried about how is it going to, is God going to leave me? Am I going to be hanging out there on my own, you know, because I drank too much coffee before or something like that, you know, is what's he going to do, you know, but he's not easily provoked. He's gracious. God doesn't think evil. That's amazing. Think about it. That means that when I pray to the Lord and I talk to him about something and say, amen, God doesn't turn to Gabriel and say, he's only asking me that because he wants a job. He doesn't do that. He doesn't, God doesn't, he takes everything at face value, even though he already knows what's underneath. Now, he doesn't think evil. He thinks the best of things. God doesn't think evil. It says that God doesn't rejoice in evil, but he rejoices in truth. That means that even when the enemies of God falter, God doesn't rejoice in it. In the Psalms, it says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We take pleasure in the death of the wicked. We think, oh, good, you know, finally, a little more light in the world and a little less darkness. But God doesn't take delight in that. He does take delight in the exposing of truth, though. The idea is that he rejoices in what's equitable or what is just. And then the, the grand finale of love's definition is given in those final verses where it says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and it never fails. And I just put God right there because God is love. God bears all, God believes all, God hopes all, God endures all, God never fails. Okay, now this is the definition of love. So when you talk about love from the divine standpoint or from the scriptural standpoint, this is the definition of what that means. It is completely unconditional. It has absolutely no strings attached. And there is not a mirror or an angle or a cloud anywhere in the room when you're talking about it. It is perfectly incomprehensible, pure and sincere love for no definable reason. Because if there's any definable reason, then you can't, you have to eliminate something from the definition. Because he's removed every condition from the love in that. It is love, okay? Now, the difference then between love in the Bible and every other word that we use love for, thing that we attach the word love to, the big difference in that is that God's love, biblical love, true love, gold love, is not an event. It's not something that just happens. Neither is it a feeling, something that we feel. 
or realize, but rather it is completely and purely a choice. Love is a choice. It's something that is chosen, okay? Let me give it to you this way. It's Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, and this is going to clear it up and confuse you at the same time. Because God speaking through Moses is talking to his people, and he's telling them that he loves them, and then he's going to tell them why he loves them. Are you ready for it? You want to know why God loves his people? Here goes. For you are a holy people, that simply means set apart, separated, unto the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a special people unto himself. He chose you above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Why? The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the people, for you were the fewest of all the people. So then why? Verse 8. But because the Lord loved you. He loves you because he loves you. And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Here's the reason why God loves you. Because he loves you. His love towards his people is based upon his choice and his word. What he's chosen to do in himself and because of what he has spoken and what he has said, him being God. That's the reason. It's a choice based on love and promise. God loves because God chooses to love. Okay? So concerning love and us, where do we fit into this whole thing? And this whole idea of being a decisionary. Here's what it is to understand. Is that love involves a choice. Love involves a choice that we make, but it's not the choice that you think. Because this is the part where you think, okay, this is where the preacher tells me to just choose to love my spouse, even though I don't really want to. <laughs> this is where God, the, the preacher tells me to choose to love my boss and my neighbor and my enemy and my dog. Choose. No, 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 no. That's, that's not the choice. I'm going to flip it on you. I'm flipping a little. Here's what it is. The choice is not that you choose to let love out. The choice is whether or not you're going to let love in. And that's much harder. See, that's what John did. John, the decisionary, John, the one who understood love more than anybody else probably in the Bible, maybe more than anyone else that ever lived, aside from Jesus Christ himself, is that he decided to let love in. He opened up his heart to the love that God made available to him. He let himself be loved. That's what he did. See, you and I, we have the ability as humans to receive and to give love, but there's a problem with all this, and that is that we live in a fallen world, right? And that love has been sinned against in great ways. Meaning that we have love receptors inside of us. We have the ability to receive it, to know it, to experience it. But they're sensitive and they're vulnerable. They are nerve endings. And when they're touched by true love, there is nothing more amazing at all in the whole world than to be loved sincerely and in truth. For love receptors to receive true and real love. But when our love receptors, that's a word I made up. You can patent it and put it in the dictionary if you want, are touched by any counterfeit thing that claims for itself to be love, but it is not, then the result of that is damage and pain. It hurts more than anything else. True love is better than anything else. But fake love does damage and it hurts. And fallen humans are incapable of producing true love. Which means every single one of us that are in here right now have been damaged and wounded by fake love. And that has a, 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 an outcome. That has a byproduct. There's something that happens in the life when that happens. Because when you're a little child, you can't protect yourself. You're made in the image of God, and you're made to be loved. 
And then as a little child, you have imperfect parents that don't have the capacity and the ability to love you with perfect love. They don't even know what they're doing. We don't know what we're doing. My wife and I were having this conversation the other night thinking about the different big mistakes that we think about all the time. Like, why did I do that? It's so stupid. You know, these mistakes raising our kids. And it damages it, does damage, not intentionally, but it just happens. Using love as leverage, withdrawing it, withholding it, not having it, not showing it, using flattering, all these other things, and, and, and it hurts, it wounds. And what happens then is that it causes a callus in the heart. And what we learn by the time that we're adults is we learn how to not let love in because that's the only defense that we have to not be wounded by something that's not real. And so we become cows. We don't let love in anymore. We self-medicate with self-love. We learn to love ourselves, to look out for ourselves, to take care of ourselves, and we learn how to make that enough. And we become experts at using one another and loving ourselves. That's the fallen human condition that we live in. And it takes an amazingly high level of trust for a grown human being to let true love into the heart. Because love is too easy to fake. It's too easy to be wounded by it. And we've all been wounded by the people that are supposed to love us. We've been used, manipulated. My daughter gave me a new word, ghosted. You know what that means? You're probably under 20, you know? <laughs> you know, you, they, they said they love me and then they just stopped answering my texts. They stopped answering my calls. They stopped talking to me. They ghosted me forgotten, marginalized, let down. And that has a result. We become jaded, we become cynical, and we learn to use people to take care of ourselves. And then here's what happens, is that at some point in our adult life, because God is faithful, God lets himself be revealed to us through a preacher, through a friend, through a book we read. God has his ways. We come and we hear about a God who loves. We hear about a God who loves perfectly, and unconditionally, and fiercely, with intensity, and that it's ceaseless, and it's not based on anything I've done, or can do, or will do, it's just that he loves me that much, and you know what our response is, is, yeah, what does he want, what does he want, what is he going to do in my life, and there's a check engine light, but we have a choice, we can either let the love in, or we can say, no, no, or we could say, okay, maybe just, maybe just a little, a little, little in, a little, little, because I don't know, maybe, we'll see, you know. And we just don't believe. We don't believe that true love exists. It's incomprehensible to us. That's what it says in John 1.5. You read John 1.5, right? It says that light shines in the darkness, but that the darkness comprehended it not. And so we're all in this dark place, this fallen life. God's light and God's love comes, and we don't get it. It doesn't make sense to us. It's incomprehensible to us. And we think, well, I don't need it. I've learned how to love myself, and that's sufficient. Well, here's the whole testimony of John that he says is true. He says that he let love in, and that's what made the difference in his life. He let God love him. He opened himself up to God. He made himself vulnerable to God, and that became the defining characteristic of his life to the point where he made it his identity that he was the one that was loved of God. I want to be known by nothing other than the fact that God loves me. Make it my identity. Make it my system that I operate in and make it the legacy of my memory of what I leave behind, that I'm loved by God. John saw something in Jesus that was invisible, but it was so real to him that he made a decision that he was going to live his life according to it. He was a decisionary that said, I'm going to live by God's love. And here's the good news is that that's a choice that every single one of us here tonight have because God has made his love available to all of us to the same degree. And as much as we are willing to choose to let God love us, our lives will reflect the quality of those who are loved by God. Well, you say, well, what kind of a life does the love of God produce when a person lets it in? What did it do for John? I'll tell you three things quickly as we close. Is the number one, what it did for John, letting love in, making the choice to let love in, is that it sealed his devotion. You can write that down if you're taking notes. 
is that it sealed his devotion. It so filled him so completely that for the rest of his life, there was nothing that could hold his attention or gain his affection. He was loved by God and it was enough. Do you guys realize that John was different? I mean, if you read the Bible for a little while, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know it's like Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the others. And it's, and it's different. John doesn't see the, the world. He didn't see Jesus the same way the other ones did. And you kind of get the idea when you read through the New Testament that the other, the other people that wrote, they knew God. I'm not taking anything. They were inspired by the Spirit. I'm not saying that they weren't. But you get the sense that they knew about the love of God and it was more intelligence than experience. But with John, it was pure experience. He knew something of the love of God. It comes out in the things that he wrote, in the things that he said. They identified it. John personalized it. And John received everything that he needed in his life through his relationship with God. He was truly set free from everything else by the love that God poured into his life. John was the only one of the 12 apostles that was at the cross. Do you know why? Because he was so devoted to Jesus because of Jesus' love that he didn't care what anybody else thought. He didn't care what Rome thought. Oh, well, ooh, look at that guy. He, he's, he, look at, look at, look at, look, Google. Look at his searches. He's searching Jesus. Look, Google, he didn't care. He didn't care that Rome saw that he was devoted to him. He's like, no, no, that's Jesus. I got nothing else. I want nothing else. I'm there. The other ones forsook him and fled. They were worried about what one another thought. They were worried about what Rome thought. They're worried about everything else. Am I going to get hurt? John was like, I'm going to be with Jesus to the very end because that's my life. It sealed his devotion absolutely completely. And John never cared again for the rest of his life what anyone thought. He didn't care about their position. He didn't care about their expectations of him. He said, I am the disciple that Jesus loved. He did not say, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved more than them, because that didn't matter to him. He didn't care. It mattered to Peter. Remember Peter? Lord, what's going to happen to him? It matters to us. We're looking around all the time. We're looking at people like, what are they going to do? What are they doing? Why are they dressed like that? What are they saying? What kind of book are they reading? How do they pray? We look, John, that wasn't John who was like, no, my eyes are on him. I'm, I'm loved by him. I don't need to love him more than you. And I don't need to know if he loves you more than he loves me. In fact, I know he doesn't because I know he loves me. And I'm getting as much love from him as I could possibly receive in this little heart that I have. And so I really could care less how much he loves you or doesn't love you or does for you. Or does. I don't care. And that's the way John lived his entire life. He was unaffected completely. There was no competition with someone else, no comparison with someone else. He was complete and full and free. The problem with people is that we care a lot what people think. We look a lot at what other people are doing. We are always asking permission, is it okay that I am this way? And we're looking for approval or affirmation from other people. John was like, I don't care. I don't care what you think of me, what I, the way I dress, the way I talk, if I'm there, if I'm not there, if I'm flaky, if you think I'm so heavenly minded that I'm no earthly good, if I don't write the same things in my gospel that Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote in theirs, I don't care. He loves me. And he was set free by that love. He felt no need to conform, to please someone else, or to be an enabler for anyone else. It sealed his devotion. It also saved him from distraction. That's number two. You can write that down. It saved him from distraction. See, when people are not full, when people are not completed, they seek to fill themselves with something and to complete themselves in some way. And Christians are guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. We all do it in some way. Now, John was full. He was complete. And you see it in his walk and in his life as he continued to follow Jesus. You see all of the other apostles getting into all kinds of debates about issues. They debated with each other. They debated about doctrines. They had councils about what do we do with the Gentiles. Let me ask you a question. Where's John in all of that? He was in the room, but he didn't have much to say. And you almost get the idea that John was like, you guys can figure that out. I'm going to hang out with Jesus. And you guys work all that stuff out on your own. I don't want to be a part of it. I don't need my name signed. I don't need to be a, an influencer in this matter. I don't need to be a part of it. 
I'm completely satisfied to stand on the outside. I don't need to argue with Paul about whether or not it's okay to eat with Gentiles. I don't need to worry about where I'm going to be in five years and what I'm going to do and what God's going to do with my life when he leads me forward from here. I am so completed in his love for me that I'm sure he's going to take care of me. I know it. It, and it sealed him from being distracted by things that don't matter. He was content with the will of God for his life today, and he was unfazed by everything else. And then number three is that it sent him the distance. Because I know there's someone going, well, if you live that way, what do you actually end up accomplishing? What do you end up doing? Well, for John, it sent him the distance. John's receiving of Jesus' love caused him to go further to climb higher, and to live longer than anyone else. Think about it for a minute. Acts chapter 4, verse... Maybe this is the one I'm going to get wrong, right? Acts chapter 4, verse 13. It says this. It says that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. See, these guys had no education, they had no intelligence, they had no letters or degrees after their name, and yet God was using their lives beyond that of those that were prepared, that those were qualified by the system, and those that looked on were marveling at it. They're going like, these guys know nothing, and yet God is using them. See, when someone's affected by the love of God, they become fruitful, their lives go somewhere. John went further than other people because of the love of God in his life. He climbed higher. You read the Gospel of John. You read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And you know what you see is that the truths that were revealed to John through the love of Jesus and his devotion to Jesus were higher than the truths. Not that there's you know, levels of truth, but you get the idea that he knew something of God that was on another level. He knew God in an intimate and rich and, and, and real way. He climbed higher. And then he lived longer. John actually outlived all of the other apostles, and John wrote the book of Revelation that we'll be studying beginning a couple weeks with Pastor Bobby, when he was an old man because he was so filled with God that he couldn't even be martyred. They tried to kill him, and it didn't even work. He went further than everyone else. And you know what's amazing? That he had more to give. The man who Jesus loves is more free, more satisfied, and more fruitful than those who let less in. And this is the life of those that choose to be affected by the love of God. You say, how does a calloused person who's jaded and cynical open up their heart to receive the love of God? For $9.99, three easy payments, you can subscribe to my... No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to tell you as we close. It's very simple. It is three easy steps. Number one is that you believe it. You make a choice in the consciousness of your mind that though maybe you can't see it clearly, you choose by faith to apprehend and grab a hold of what God says about himself. And you choose to believe that God loves you because he loves you in spite of you, even though you have nothing to bring to the table or nothing that he can gain from you. And you choose to simply believe that God's love is for you and that he's willing to fill you with his love overflowing and complete. You make a decision in faith that God loves you. And what that means is that you choose to believe that he loves you in every one of his roles in your life. Okay, because God has a lot of roles in your life. Do you understand that? I mean, first we come to Jesus, that's number one, and we say, okay, God, I believe, I accept you, and we're saved. But all of a sudden, he becomes our father, and a father starts raising a kid, and sometimes when a father raises a kid, there's some things that a father does that the kid doesn't like. And when those things that we don't like come into our life, we don't say, well, God, you don't love me, but no, we choose to believe, God, you love me, and you love me enough that you're allowing this to happen in my life because it's necessary in my life for me to become what you're making me to be. And I choose to believe that this is done in your love. I, love. I believe that he loves me and his role is my shepherd. He's leading my life and he's leading me in a way I don't want to go. I don't want to go that way right now. But God says, you're going that way. Trust me. Oh, no, God, you don't love me if you're making me go that way. I want to go this way. If you love me, you'll let me go this way. 
No, I believe, Lord, if that's the way you want me to go, that's the way I'm going. Because you love me and you have a good outcome for me. See, here's the amazing thing. Do you know, do you know why I, I have kids? It's not so that I can lord over them. It's not so that I can get something from them because they've got nothing that they can give me. There's no reason. Here's, here's what my hope is for my kids. My hope is that they hate me when, I'm, when they're young because of some of the things that I do or allow or whatever that are contrary so that when they are old and blessed, we can enjoy life together. And that's what God wants with us. He wants to bless our lives so that he can enjoy it with us, in communion with us. And so he brings us through things in order to shape the development that will sustain the blessing that he wants to bring into our life. So I choose to believe it. Once I choose to believe it, step number two is that then I expect it. I believe it, and then I expect it. God, you love me. I believe that you love me. And so I'm expecting that I'm going to experience the presence of your love in my life. It's not just a word. It's not a profession that's void of any real experience. But I'm going to expect, God, that you say that you love me. And so I'm going to believe that as I move through my life, I'm going to experience the effects of that love within me. I expect it. There's a hope. Hey, are you following me here? I believe it. That's faith. I expect it. Expectation is hope, right? Because faith, hope, I believe it, I expect it, and then number three, I experience it, or enjoy it, rather. I enjoy it. I enjoy the love of God in my life. It's real. He's real. I'm satisfied in Him. You know how you can remember how to receive the love of God? Is that you just spell the word. You believe it, you expect it, you enjoy it, B-E-E, and you remember, I am his beloved. I am beloved by God. I believe it. I expect it. I will enjoy it. And the Bible says that you are beloved of the Lord, and that's, that's what he does. Now, Jude says this. Jude says to us, Jude chapter 20, or Jude, Jude verse 20 and 21, Jude says this. He says, but you... Wrong button. <laughs> but you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus unto eternal life. The Apostle Paul said it this way. It's Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 16, he says this, it's his prayer for us. He says that he would grant you, that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Picture roots growing down from your feet, and they are rooted in the love of God. Now, our roots can be in all kinds of things, right? I can be rooted in pleasures of the world. I can be rooted in Netflix. I can be rooted in you name it. I'm not going to start naming things. You guys know. But he's saying, listen, keep yourselves in the place where you're rooted in his love for you. You're believing it. You're expecting it. You're experiencing it. You're enjoying it. You're living in his love. And you know what happens? Is that when his love floods your heart, you then have something to give to someone else. See, the choice begins with letting him in. I let him in and now I have something to give out. I get to live in this. It's amazing because my wife has this down. She could give John a run for his money on letting love in. You know, she just has this in her. And what I have seen of the love of God in her life is that she loves me so unconditionally that sometimes I'm like, maybe she just, like, sometimes I almost think, like, maybe she's not, there's something, you know. There's not, and she, don't get me wrong. Like, she's not, an, she's not no, but, but sometimes, like, I'm so unlovable. And yet she loves me and she thinks the best of me. And, she's, and, and you know why it is? It's because she's letting him in. And, and there was literally a season of, in our relationship where I was jealous of Jesus. 
Because like he was kind of the other man in her life. You know what I mean? Like he would just, Lord, she loves you, you know? And like, I'm supposed to, and it's like, Lord, is this, I'm, that's not the, I'm so thankful that she has Jesus first in her life because that's what enables her then to love me. See, when we choose to let him love us, that's what empowers us to choose to love other people. Without that, we can't do it. It falls short every time. So my prayer for us tonight as a congregation is that we would be decisionaries in this thing called love, that we would see it, that we would comprehend together with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that we might be filled with the fullness of God and that that might reflect in our lives. Jesus said, by this shall all men know you're my disciples. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would do this in us. We open our hearts to you. We receive of you, Lord. And we ask you, God, change us by your love. Make us to know, Lord. Make it our identity. Make it our system. Make it our legacy that we are disciples whom Jesus loved. Make it so, Lord. Even now, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.